So this is our final week of a three-part series called First Things First, where we are discussing how to seek God first with all we have been entrusted and live into the call of Matthew 6.33, which says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so today we are going to be jumping in talking about commitment. But before we do that, let's ask God to be with us right now and to move in our hearts and our minds as we go into the last week of this series. God, we thank you for another Sunday evening to gather in this space. I thank you for every single person that is in this room. I thank you for getting them here safely. And Lord, we pray for what you're going to do in this space. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for what you offer us in scripture. And I pray, God, that uh, you would teach us tonight. I pray that every person in this space would, would leave just a little bit changed and that um, their hearts and their minds would be open to what you have for them this evening. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So I got feedback from some of you that you love when we do a little recap moment. And so we are going to do that and talk about what we learned in weeks one and two. Um, it's particularly important because tonight we're building off of, of what we learned those first two weeks. So first, in week one, we began by identifying what competes for our resources and prevents us from seeking God first with everything that we have been entrusted, whether that is our time or our energy or our relationships uh, or our finances, whatever it might be. And we did this by looking at what we have intentionally or accidentally turned into idols, things that we have begun worshiping that are not God. And we said that an idol can be anything, person, or situation, good or bad, that we have given the majority of our attention and love. And so to help us identify what those items or, or things or people might be in our lives that are competing for our love, competing for our devotion to God, we found some warning signs in Scripture by looking at the people of Israel. And we saw that we should be weary of anything that the world tells us we need, anything that we do in secret, Anything that we approach with an I know best mentality instead of trusting God. And third, we should be weary of anything that we have taken that is normally a good thing and because of the way we've abused it, it's turned into a bad thing and therefore become a worthless thing. When we do any of this, we are then at risk of putting these very good things from God into idle territory. And of course, our only way out of this is to surrender those things to God and ask him to intercede. And then last week, week two, we looked at the challenges that are presented to us in scripture and what God teaches us when it comes to generosity. So first, we're told to give of our first fruits, make generosity a priority. And to do that, we're told to be giving at a regular percentage. And this applies to not just to our finances, but anything valuable that we've been entrusted Second, we talked about how God didn't create rules in scripture to be mean, and he doesn't ask us to be generous people um, because he likes to challenge us. Rather, we are made in God's image, and therefore, we are living into the way that God designed us when we are generous. Just like God gave sacrificially, we too are called to give sacrificially from our heart, not out of compulsion or out of guilt, but out of love for the Lord. Finally, I broke the secret to you all that God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our time. God doesn't need our gifts and our skills or anything of worldly value because he is an almighty and powerful God who made the entire universe. Rather, he invites us to be generous and be part of what he is doing. He extends to us this holy invitation to contribute and take part 
in what he's doing here on earth. It is a gift that God designed us to be generous, and he's inviting us to come with him in terms of building his kingdom. And so then today, we are going to talk about commitment. And see, I believe that we all want to fulfill this call of Matthew 6, which tells us to seek God first. We all want to love the Lord first. We all want to give him our devotion. And if you're not there yet, you're at least curious or else you wouldn't be at church this evening. But simultaneously, we try to control our resources and we invite stress and anxiety and fear to permeate our actions instead of allowing trust in God and surrender to lead us through life. So today we're going to evaluate what it takes to commit to seeking God first and doing it successfully. For all of us, our commitment is going to look a little bit different. Some of us need to commit to regularly giving of our time to God. Our calendars are out of control and we do not have any time to serve God and his kingdom agenda and something needs to change. For others, we need to make a commitment to having healthy and godly relationships We have spent far too long investing in ourselves and in our worldly relationships that don't honor God and the way that he created us for one another. For some of us, we need to commit to regularly giving of our finances to God. Right now, our finances are primarily self-serving or serving the needs of others, but not serving God. And we need to commit to giving of our first fruits, giving God a percentage of our earnings sacrificially from our heart. For others, it's going to be your energy. You're exhausted. We have been so busy doing and working at things of this world, but we haven't taken the time to give God our energy and give God our talents. We haven't allowed him to use the gifts and skills that he's put in us. So it's going to be different for every single person in this room, but I hope that something is coming to mind right now, an area that you need to realign and put God first in. And so we're going to walk through three steps of commitment today, plan, support, and follow through. Let's start off talking about planning. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. When we agree to a commitment, this doesn't mean that we're on our own, but rather we have to create a plan and then hand it over to God. And scripture says that he will establish it as we take the steps to be faithful. Now, all the type B people are like, ah. I don't know if that is true, but it is incredibly important. A plan, it creates a guide that allows us then to measure our generosity against our intentions, against our good intentions. Because we can have the best of intentions. We can say today that I am faithfully going to start serving once a month at my home church Or I am faithfully going to give God 5% of my income and and work hard to get up to that 10% tithe. But unless you have a plan to accomplish these things, these righteous goals, they're just going to remain empty endeavors. In Matthew 25, verse 14 through 30, Jesus gives a great example of the importance of planning and intentionality when it comes to generosity. And I'm going to read uh, from the message version tonight, which we don't normally do, but I think it helps us reach modern day application a little bit faster. Scripture says, it's also like a man going off on an extended trip. He called his servants together and delegated responsibilities. To one, he gave $5,000, to another $2,000, to a third $1,000, depending on their abilities. And then he left. Right off, the first servant went to work and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same. But the man with the single thousand dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. 
After a long absence, the master of those three servants came back and settled up with them. The one given $5,000 showed him how he had doubled his investment. His master commended him. Good work. You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant with the 2000 showed how he also had doubled his master's investment. His master commended him. Good work. You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant given 1000 said, Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error, and I was afraid I might disappoint you. So I found a good hiding place and secured your money there. Here it is safe and sound down to the last cent. The master was furious. That is a terrible way to live. It is criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. First in this story, it's important to note that no one received more or less than they could handle. Scripture says what the servants received was based off of their abilities. And two of the the servants, they decided to make a plan with how to steward what they've been given. They had different amounts. So this shows us that stewardship is not about how much we have, but how well we use what we have. And the person who received 2,000, you know, he didn't wait until he had more to do something meaningful with it. Rather, they both received the money, they made a plan, and immediately chose to invest in a way that would create a good return. But the one who received 1,000, he squandered it. He was entrusted with resources, and instead of investing them, instead of using them in a way that honored his master, he buried them because he was afraid, because he was worried. He didn't have a plan that would result in a profit. In the NIV translation, scripture says that what he does was worthless. He might as well not have done it at all. And we discussed this in week one. When we're given good things but don't steward them wisely, we then run the risk of them becoming worthless things. The finances in this story, they they can represent any resource that God has given us. It doesn't depend on what it is or how much we have been given. What matters is that we are entrusted to steward our resources wisely and invest in God's kingdom. And without a plan, we run the risk of becoming complacent, fearful, or maybe even worthless like the third guy. So what does this look like? What does a plan actually entail? Well, that's up to you because we all talked about it earlier that we're struggling to commit a different area to God. If it's your finances you struggle to give to God, then you need a budget. And if you want to prioritize giving of the first fruits of your income, then I would encourage you to do so in a way that happens automatically. You can give online to most organizations. You can set it up on a recurring basis so that the first fruits of your income are going straight to God. And if it's your time that you struggle to surrender to God, then you need a calendar where you decide on the first of the month what time you are going to give back to God. If it's your talents or your skills that you struggle to give back to God and let him use for his benefit, then you need to sign up to serve your church or your community according to those gifts. Right here at the table, we would say you need a planning center account or you need a team around you. Planning center is the platform we use um, for folks who want to start serving in God's house. And um, yeah, we would say you need that or you need a team. You need tools that help you plan 
how you're going to give back to God. A plan creates support and guidance for us to live generously with intentionality and consistency, and in return, produce more for God than we can imagine. Now, we are not going to walk through the process of how to create a budget or how to create a godly calendar tonight altogether because I want you to like me. But if you need more resources on how to do that, um, I've listed two books on our resource page, uh, thetablechurch.org slash resources. You can always scroll down uh, to whatever topic we're teaching or, or preaching on, and there's, there's some resources there for you. The next thing we need after we have created a plan is we need support. As much as we might believe that we can walk through life on our own and take care of ourselves, Scripture is clear that is not how we were designed to live. We were designed to walk through life with people around us cheering us on and supporting us. Hebrews 10, verse 23 through 25 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, on Sundays and the 30 minutes following our church service, it's really easy to do that first part. It's really easy to hold on to the hope we profess and trust that God will be faithful. Because we just sang songs about it, and we just had someone talk to us about it for 25 minutes. And in the same way, you might walk out of here tonight and you might go home and you might make a plan to seek God first with your finances or your time or your relationships or whatever it might be. And you are trusting that God will be faithful and he will provide for you. You've put your hope in him and you think it's done. But then Monday is going to come and the demands of the work week are going to come and the demands for your resources are just going to grow and grow and grow and spiral. And before you know it, your hope in God, it decreases, while your hope in what you can control increases. You put your hope in your stock portfolio. You put your hope in your career. You put your hope in your status or earning potential or in a relationship. And meanwhile, the world continues to influence us to hold on tightly to all those things that we can control. I saw a pastor share an image this week on Instagram, and it says, you can have faith or you can have control, but you can't have both. You can have faith or you can have control, but you cannot have both. And that's why scripture tells us, put your hope in God for he is faithful, but don't stop there, right? It goes on to say, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. As the world tells you to hold on tightly to what you can control, your faith-filled community is around you Monday through Saturday to remind you that only God is in control. While the world tells you what you need, your faith-filled community is there to support you and remind you of what God says you need. Community is not just about having people around you to make you feel loved and happy. Community is also there to challenge us to be better, to guide us in the ways of the Lord, to hold us accountable to the plan that we worked so hard to create, and to remind us of God's faithfulness. Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. So that begs us to ask the question, who are your advisors? At the table, we encourage everyone to be active in our community in two ways, by being in a small group, but also by serving on a team. And we do this because our faith is not just formed by praying together or talking about God together or reading scripture together, 
But our faith is also formed by serving together, by selflessly sharing our talents and our time with our community and putting them into action together. You have to think what would have happened earlier in that Matthew passage that we read if one of the two guys who chose to invest what they were given invited the third guy to come along and do it with them. They would have had so much greater return from their investment. So in all things, we deserve to have people around us cheering us on, but especially when we are going against the pull of our fears, our need for control, and what the world is telling us we need. So step two then, surround yourself with support. And then finally, the last step is to trust in God's authority and that what God says is true and follow through with your plan. Follow through. Follow through with the generous living that God calls us to. And again, I would remind you what we discussed last week. The asks of God in scripture, they are not for his own benefit. He is not self-seeking. They are written in scripture because God knows what's best for us because he created us. So once we have made a plan and created a support system, all that's left for us to do is be obedient and follow through, trusting that God knows what he's talking about in scripture. There is nothing I can do to help you reach that final step of following through. And sometimes this is the very place that I get caught up at. This is where I struggle. I've made a plan. I have good intentions. I have people around me to support me. And yet when the time comes to give sacrificially of what is most dear to me, I struggle with it too. And often I have found that the times I struggle most to follow through is when I'm trying to be generous from my head. I'm trying to be generous from my mind. I'm trying to be generous from my understanding of how the world works and how the world explains generosity instead of being generous from my heart. We're going to read one more passage because it speaks more beautifully and powerfully about generosity than any preacher could do. And I think it defines generosity from the heart really well. You can turn with me to John 12, verse 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. But one of his disciples, Judas, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was planned that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. See, the last time that Jesus was in Bethany before this scene... Jesus had raised Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, from the dead. That's why the author points out in the beginning of this chapter that Lazarus was there. Lazarus was at the dinner with all of them. See, Jesus couldn't stand to see Mary and Martha hurting after losing their brother. And he told them, you're going to see him again. You're going to see your brother again, the brother that you love so dearly. And then four days after his death, Jesus does what only God can do and raised Lazarus from the dead. And so now Jesus is in Bethany once again and they're at dinner together and they are celebrating Jesus for this beautiful thing that he did for their family. This outpouring of love, the new life that Jesus gave to Lazarus. 
And Mary decides that in response to the love that Jesus has shown, she's going to give what is most precious to her. And scripture tells us that this perfume that she poured onto Jesus' feet, it was worth a year's wages. And without invitation, she just, she pours it out on Jesus' feet. Mary took the most expensive thing that she had and she gave it to Jesus. She anoints him. Other gospels speak of this and said that she started to cry and her hair, it started to to fall out of place in the presence of many men, I should add, something that was not allowed then. And instead of putting it back up where it belongs, she instead uses it to wipe the feet of Jesus. And we find out in the next chapter that she was preparing Jesus' feet for his journey back to Jerusalem. She was preparing Jesus' feet for his journey to the cross. And Judas, Judas who represents the evils of this world, says, what a waste. What a waste. You wasted something of great value by pouring it out on the feet of Jesus. It could have been used for the poor. See, Judas was thinking with his head, and Mary was giving from her heart. And I don't know about you, but if I had to choose between the two, I don't want to be generous in a way that makes sense from a Judas point of view, from a worldly standpoint. I want to be generous in a way that results in my heart compelling me to give all that I have to God in worship. When we pour out what we have and we give it to God, the world, the Judases in our life, They might call it waste, but Jesus just calls it worship. When we give of what is most valuable to us, the church might call it generosity, but Jesus just calls it worship. And when our hearts recognize the sacrifice of Jesus who bore all of our sins so that we do not have to, we are compelled to give of what we have and we are compelled to worship. Mary didn't want what the world could offer her. She wanted what... Jesus could offer her. The world, it empties us, but Jesus, he fills us. And if giving sacrificially of what we have, if following through over and over and over again means that we can be filled each and every time by more of Jesus, there is nothing of greater value in this world. But we have to take that final step and follow through. We've been through a journey over the past three weeks of looking at stewardship in a new way and this series it's been challenging and difficult to preach so I know that it has been challenging and difficult to absorb and and take it in I have been in your seats during a series like this it's a challenge but at the same time it's really quite simple God gave us everything all that we have on this earth but even greater he sacrificed his son so that we could spend eternity with him Because he loves us just that much. And it's a free gift. There's nothing that we could do to repay that generosity. There is nothing that comes close to the love that God poured out for us on the cross. All we can do is accept it. And just like Mary knew that her perfume that cost a year's wages was so small in comparison to the love of God, she still poured out what she had. And she still chose to worship him with what she had. She still chose to put God first. And so we're going to pray for that. We're going to pray that God would guide us as we try to do this. 
We're going to pray that we could surrender things like our time and our finances and our calendar and our relationships and all those things we hold on so tightly. We're going to pray that we could surrender those to God and put him first. But for some of you, it's not your resources that you are worried about giving to God in this moment. It's your heart. You have lived for this world and it has only failed you and disappointed you and emptied you and you don't want that anymore. You want to prioritize God. You don't want to be in control of your life anymore and you're ready to ask God to reign in all areas of your life for the first time and you want to accept the love of Jesus. And so we're going to give you a chance to do that too when we pray together in a minute. And for others of you, you know all this to be true, but it has been so long since you let God lead you and since you let God fill you and you want to come back. You want to come back to his embrace. You've experienced what this world has to offer and you know that God is better. And so we're going to give you all a chance too to ask God to reign in your life and be first once again. And then after we pray together, we're going to come to this table and we're going to celebrate and remember God's sacrificial love. We're going to celebrate this tangible reminder of how he put us first. And then we're going to worship God together. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for teaching us, for challenging us, for, for guiding us during this series, Lord. We thank you for everything that you have done over the past three weeks. And specifically, we thank you for, for just showing us this concept of generosity in a new way. I thank you for guiding me, for giving me words, for moving in my heart. But I also thank you, God, for stirring in the hearts and minds of the people in this room and the people in our church. And so I pray, God, that you would guide us, you would give us grace, and you would encourage us to continue to put you first. And for whatever it is that people in this space are holding on to right now, whether it is worries about their time or their finances or their relationships or their energy, their calendars, whatever resource it might be, that they want to surrender to you, God, I pray that you would just give them the courage to put that in your hands right now, Lord. We want to put you first, God. And we also pray, Lord, that for some of us who have let the world control us and we have wound up empty, we're ready to take that next step and let you guide us. And so I, I pray alongside the folks right now who have maybe never done this before, who are wanting to give their life to you, who are wanting to not just surrender a resource, one particular resource to you, but there are folks in this space who want to give you their whole heart for the first time. And so I pray, God, that you would just nudge them gently right now. And if that's you, you can pray this. You can pray this right now in your heart or out loud. God, thank you for the sacrificial gift of your son, Jesus, and the grace that you offer me. I don't want to live in this world for me, but I want you to reign in my life. Forgive me for the ways I have let the world lead me and give me the strength and wisdom as I begin to let you lead me and put you first. We love you, God. We thank you for this time. We thank you for these three weeks. We praise you, we glorify you, we honor you. In your name we pray, amen.